Hey everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so my guest this week is Paul Burford, a.k.a. Burf, who is the man behind BTR Fabrications, who not only have made a couple of my personal favorite bikes over the years, but really did a whole lot to pioneer the whole genre of hardcore hardtails and pushed the geometry of those bikes way further than anyone had to that point long before the super aggressive hardtails started to become commonplace. And so Burf and I chat about his background and how and why he started BTR in the first place, his philosophy on bike design and geometry, a whole bunch of BTR's models over the years, including a couple of their full suspension bikes, the wild one-off gasser downhill bike project from a couple of years ago, and a whole lot more. It's a really cool conversation with a really smart dude who has built some really amazing bikes over the years, so I think you'll really enjoy it. But before we get into it, I do want to take a quick moment to encourage you to check out our Blister membership and all of the benefits you get with it, including access to our flash reviews and deep dives, our personalized gear recommendations for whatever you might be looking at, a bunch of great discounts, including 15% off We Are One's excellent carbon wheels, and a whole bunch more. There's a link in the show notes, so check that out. And with that, let's get right to my conversation with Burf. Well, Burf, it's great to sit down and chat. Thanks for taking the time to do it. How are you today and where are you today? Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for, it's, it's an honor to, to be on your podcast. Yeah, I'm all good today. Yeah, I'm on a good day. Can't complain, really. Oh, glad to hear it. Well, yeah, I wanted to have you on just because... You've been making some pretty interesting bikes for a while now, and well, I've owned a couple of them over the years, so just kind of wanted to have a bit of a chat about what BTR is and what you've been up to with the company. So to kick it off, I guess, just would be curious to hear a little bit about the history and how you got into frame building in the first place and all that. So kind of take it from here, I suppose. I guess as a as a teenager, I always wanted to make bikes. I was um, into racing downhill, and uh, companies like Curtis and Brooklyn um, Brooklyn Machine Works, you know, they were making their own bikes. I just thought that was really cool. Um, and yeah, I've always been into making things. Like looking back on my childhood, I was always like, you know, not so good at the academic side of things, but really loved making things so um yeah so as a teenager they're finding those brands really cool i was just like that's that's kind of what i wanted to do uh so i took myself off to college and university after college with the intention of learning engineering so that i could you know start my own bike brand um and then it was at university that i met tam and we kind of got chatting, going to the pub, that kind of stuff. We you know, decided that we, you know, the pair of us wanted to run our own sort of bike brand. And then I flunked out of uni. I only managed to do the first year. And then after uni, I got a job as a, like a welder fabricator. And then I learned the skills, learned the skills there to be able to sort of make a bike frame. 
you know, through through work. Yeah, okay. And what kind of welding fabrication stuff were you doing at that first job? So the first uh, welding job I got was at Sheet Metal Factory. Um, so yeah, it was just sort of welding up boxes. I learned TIG welding there. I'd already done some MIG welding, you know, just welding cars and just making the odd projects and stuff like that. But that's that's where I learned to, to TIG weld. It was just on, you know, one, two, one to two millimeter thick sheet metal, just welding up hundreds and hundreds of boxes and grinding all the welds off and then sending it off for paint sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, that's where I cut my teeth with the TIG welder. And then after that, I got a job at this place that was making wire bending machines. So I'd get like a big coil of wire, straighten it out, and then, you know, it had a little arm that would come along and bend bend the wire into shapes and it would, you know, make bird cages and little stars and, you know, just any sort of shape that could be made out of wire would do that. Um, yeah, so I was the only welder there and there was like four machinists uh, there was another guy that would do like assembling of the machines, and then there was like the two bosses in the office. Um, so that was uh, that was quite a good job there, and there was uh, I had quite a bit of free time there as well. So you know I could we'd build one machine at a time, and I was doing all like the welding and fabrication of the framework and the sheet metal side of it, and then there was the four machinists like you know doing the stuff that needed to be made on CNC machines and whatnot. And I could, a lot of the time, I would get my stuff finished before the machinists would have their stuff. Um, so I would end up you know, finding myself with a lot, of time, a lot of time to twiddle my thumbs. And so I built quite a bit of the tools, or quite a few of the tools that we needed to make bike frames, you know, in the spare time. You know, we'd call them homers. I was making homers, you know, and then... Uh, yeah, so I built the, a lot of the parts we needed for the tube notcher. Uh, we built our own uh, built our own jig as well. Built that like, completely at that place when I should have been doing actual work. So yeah, that was a quite a, quite a lucky place to to get a job when we were starting up the company. And I was able to build a lot of the stuff that we needed. That's great, and you already touched a little bit on sort of just having the idea that you wanted to do this from the time you were a teenager, but, and you alluded to, you know, you mentioned Brooklyn and some other companies making kind of more downhill bikes and stuff at that time. But what was your mountain biking like at that point? Kind of what were you most into and what were you, what were you doing on a bike at that stage? Uh, it was basically like a hundred percent downhill. I, yeah, I wanted to be world champion, you know, it's like Steve Pete was my idol just going to races, like as many races as we could. Um, and yeah, I was sponsored by Muddy Fox and on the same team as the Athertons at the time. And yeah, racing nationals in the expert category, you know, just trying to trying to make my way to World Cups. Yeah, just dirt jumping when it wasn't downhilling because we lived like right down on the south coast of England. There wasn't a lot of downhill tracks. You know, so if it wasn't at a race, there, like there wasn't really any sort of downhill to do there. So we built, we had our own set of trails that we were building. And me and a mate that was into BMX, like I was into mountain bikes, he was into BMX, and we just kind of built trails together. Um, yeah, 
So yeah, it's dirt jumping and, and downhill was the kind of stuff I was into at the time. Right. Okay. So that kind of all segues pretty well into where BTR really sort of took oh, off, yeah, I suppose. Because yeah. you've, I mean, we'll get into some of that stuff in a little bit here, but you're probably best known for making fairly progressive, aggressive geometry hardtails and for having started doing so well before that trend started to take off in the way that it is now. And there are certainly more folks doing it these days than there were when BTR really kicked things off, but kind of checks out is like, you got this gravity oriented side of things, but also some dirt jumping in the mix and sort of put the two of them together a little bit. Yeah. So that was also like, while I was at university, um, there was no point in having a like a full-on downhill bike so i kind of sold my downhill bike and then started riding hardtails and yeah like i said at the time there wasn't that many like progressive geometry hardtails and that was like tam and i got to talking and you know we wanted to, well i wanted a, a downhill hardtail so yeah that's kind of how that all started yeah so we'd like to go deeper on that and kind of hear just what your early ideas for aggressive hardtail geometry were like and kind of how you informed all that stuff because this was also well i guess you can put a date on it but this was kind of all before a lot of the recent modern longer lower slacker etc was happening on just about every sort of bike and so in a lot of ways you two were pretty far ahead of the curve which is how i ended up just finding you in the first place i was uh this is probably close to i don't know eight or nine years ago now I was after a more aggressive hardtail than what I could find from most folks and was just scouring the internet trying to find the most out there thing I could and that was a ranger so uh yeah kind of where'd you kick all that off so it was 2011 that we we built the first frame uh and that was the belter so even more like extreme than the ranger was really um and yeah, so, so yeah, like I said, Tam and I were at uni studying motorsport engineering. And Tam was actually working, doing his sort of placement year at Canine Industries when we when we met. And that's how we met. I read about them in Dirt Magazine. And then, like, sent them an email being like, I want to come and hang out. What you're doing is pretty cool. And then I met Tam there. And... Yeah, we just kind of went to the pub and started riding, and and yeah, I was riding a DMR Exalt at the time. And yeah, I mentioned to him that I wanted a like a hardtail specifically for racing downhill on, because I was yeah, like I said, I wanted to be world champion, and I was kind of thinking, you know, riding a hardtail on downhill tracks. There's like a way to kind of hone your skills. You know, you, you can't get away with any sort of mistakes. You've got to pick your lines. You've got to be smooth. Um, and I figured if you could like have a downhill bike, a downhill hardtail, you'd, you know, get your skills going pretty good. Um, so yeah, I said to him that I wanted this downhill hardtail. And my kind of spec, spec list for it was like 83 mil bottom bracket, 150 mil rear axle, um and then Tam kind of got to, got to work he was the he was the like design and geometry guy and I was the fabrication guy and I remember like I'd flunked out of uni and I went up there to go and see him and he showed me the 
you know this design that he'd got for the for the downhill hardtail. And um, yeah, like the DMRX, so I guess the head angle was probably like 68 degrees, 66 degrees at the you know at the very slackest. Things were pretty reserved back then. And like reach was really short as well. Like frames that hadn't this forward geometry hadn't kind of kicked off yet. And um, yeah, he showed me the design of this hardtail, and it had a 61 degree head angle. And you know, it was just it looked absolutely crazy just on the screen. And I was just I looked at Tam and I was like, Are you sure? Like, are you are you sure? And he looked at me and was like, um, I don't know, but I reckon this is going to work. And the idea was um, <clears throat> is to do with like the having the head angle somewhere somewhere decent when the fork is completely bottomed out. You know, because the hardtail frame is pivoting on the on the rear axle. And the whole time you're using the suspension up, the head angle's getting steeper. Yeah, the idea was having a, you know, pretty decent head angle while it's bottomed out. You know, and 61 degree is static. So when it was like at sag position, it was probably like 63, 62. Um, yeah, we didn't know if it was going to work. But yeah, we got to work to making one. And uh, yeah, I had the first one built in August of 2011. So at that time, you know, the, probably the, the slackest bike was the DMR XL. That was kind of there, built as a downhill hardtail. Um, and yeah, it, was, it looked absolutely crazy. I remember showing friends pictures of the first one that we built and they were just like, what the hell is that? Um, and yeah, from the first ride, we just knew that we were onto a winner. Like it handled absolutely awesome. It is funny to imagine that 61 degree head tube angle, though, you know, 11 years ago when there, you know, it wasn't like you were comparing it to modern bikes that had that are now quite a lot slacker than things were back then. I mean, that was a a big jump, but it it all checks out. And I've kind of been banging this drum for ages that with a hardtail, you kind of need to start really slack because it's only ever going to get steeper as the suspension moves. And kind of works to keep hardtails a little bit shorter travel on the fork too because you just have less dramatic swings in the geometry as the suspension cycles the full suspension bike's a little more balanced in that regard because you've got the rear compressing to balance things out but super long travel hardtails it's a little funkier because you've just got only the one end moving around and yeah yeah and that was another thing as well it was like i said i wanted the the spec list 83 bottom bracket 150 back end and 150 millimeter travel on the front was what i wanted as well because i had i had a set of boxes on the front of this exalt as well rock shops boxes and they were like seven inches of travel and yeah i just um i ended up bodging them to reduce the travel i'd like made some little bodge to you know, bring the travel down on them um and that was because, yeah, I just felt like the front end was moving around way too much. You know, you'd go, you know, down drops and things like that, and just the front end was just completely disappearing away from you. So I was like, you don't need, or you don't want that amount of travel because it just makes it feel really weird. Yeah, still, like, still winds me up to this day when you see hardtails with like 170 mil forks on it. I'm like, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I am in full agreement on there. And, you know, having tried a lot of stuff, it's, hardtail is never going to be that cushy so you know don't try to turn it into something that it's not except that it's going to be firm and stiff and direct and just get after it so 
yeah, I mean, along those lines, I think we've kind of talked through a, a solid chunk of the BTR geometry philosophy here, but would love to hear more if you've got further thoughts on that, just kind of how you've been thinking about geometry and frame design, because you've been making these super progressive bikes, largely hardtails, though not entirely, as we'll get into in a little bit, for a good long time now, and kind of what else is key to all that for you, I guess. So the, um, like the first frame that we built, um, like I said, it was before um, Mondraker came out with forward geometry as well. So, you know, the reach was still pretty short on them. And this first frame that we built, we like took it racing and whatnot, and I kept buzzing my nuts on the back tire, just where I was like, you know, having to hang off the back so far because the reach was really short. Um, so yeah, we built a, a longer frame and that still wasn't long enough. So we built, um, you know, a longer one after that. And I forget what the, the actual reach numbers were on it, but um, yeah, it was quite a lot longer than anything else. And then the wheelbase was like super long as well because of the 61 degree head angle. Um, and yeah, that just, yeah, when you actually showed people the numbers of that, it was just so far out of there because of the, the wheelbase length was like 1,200 millimetres or something. Or, yeah, 1,200 millimetres, somewhere around there. And then 61-degree head angle. Um, so yeah, it wasn't like out of the gate we knew exactly what we were doing. You know, just kind of had this idea of what we thought um, might work. And then tested it out and made changes here and there. There, like the the head angle, also the bottom bracket was really low on the belter as well. It's like minus eighty millimeters or something like that. Um, so yeah, we didn't really change that too much. It was just like making the reach longer because I'm quite tall as well. I'm six foot two. Yeah, to get bikes that fit me, there basically wasn't anything around at the time. I was riding an Iron Horse Sunday. Was my last kind of full full suspension downhill bike. I haven't had a like a proper eight inch downhill bike since then, to be honest. And actually, I rode that again a couple of years ago. Um, <clears throat> some friends went to like an uplift day at a downhill track, and I'd taken there. Um, yeah, and I just wanted to wanted to go on a full size bike, so I built this Iron Horse back up, and it was just. It was insane. I was just like, how did we ride these things? It was just like the reach was so short. And yeah. Yeah, I've had a, that same experience on a, um, it would have been about 2010 or 2011 Turner DHR. I'd ridden one for ages um, in a size large. I'm about six feet. And this was like the, the last generation of the DHR, the DW Link one. And got on a large one of those again pretty recently just for a minute and it just felt absolutely tiny things have come a long way but i don't know we didn't know any better back then i guess that was just that was what what bikes were so got on with it and made it work it's funny yeah you look at pictures of it now and it's so it's so obvious when you see people riding them you're just like yeah the position that everyone's on on the bikes it just looks so obvious it was like how did we not how did we not know any different? Um, yeah. But then, so yeah, after the, after the Belter came the Ranger. So 
that was around about the time enduro started kicking off as well um so i remember as well thinking before before enduro kicked off i was you know we'd have downhill bikes and no uplifts so you'd have to you ride down the track and then push back up you know and pushing back up would take an hour or so and then you do a three minute downhill run and you know back to pushing up for an hour and i was like i want a bike i can ride do the downhills on and then ride back to the top and then yeah a couple of years later sort of enduro kicked off um and then tam and i wanted to go wanted to have a go at some of these enduro races so we basically got the the belter and tamed it down a little bit and you know we steepened up the head angle because you know we didn't need it to be quite as slack and we needed the, you know needed it to handle better on some tight twitchy climbs um yeah because having the head angle that slack 61 degrees that you know you get quite a lot of wheel flop and if you're going slow the, it tends to try and pull the handlebars and off to the side it kind of disappears when you're up to speed and the centrifugal force of the wheels you know keeps the keeps the bar straight but at slow speeds you get a lot of wheel flop so steepen up the head angle a bit and then the other biggest change with that frame was um steepening up the seat angles so yeah i, I yeah i like to say that we were the first ones to go with a quite a steep seat angle but I'm not exactly sure uh, but yeah the idea with that was you know we had quite a slack head angle and so we needed a steeper seat angle to get the weight distribution for the climbs you know with a slack seat angle and slack head angle you know, the bike would just have no weight on the front wheel and so going around like tight trail center corners you know there's hairpin hairpin corners going up trail centers it just you know you couldn't get around them with a slack seat angle just end up wheeling so yeah steeping up the seat angle quite a lot that was the biggest change with the with the ranger and then we built a, a prototype just out of mild steel with that you know got some heavy like two mil thick down tubes and box section seat stays and, and tam rode that around for a little bit just to kind of see how the seat angle worked whether he was onto the right track with that and then we built me one out of Reynolds tubing and we went off to like one of the first Dudes of Hazard Enduros. Um, well, they, they call it a spirit of Enduro up in Kinloch Leven. Yeah, it was quite a wake up call for us because, you know, we'd, we're only ever into downhill, not much into the pedaling side of things. And here we are having to pedal up, pedal up all the hills to, to get around the track. Yeah, it was um, you know, still 26 inch wheels. Uh, 650B hadn't kicked off then either. Um, yeah, well, I basically finished building the Reynolds 61 frame like the day before the race. Just had a like a Halfords rattle can spray paint on it, um, and then yeah, took it up there and yeah, had a blast. It was real good. Handled amazingly on all the downhill side, side of things as well. I mean, yeah, basically knew we were onto the right track straight away with that as well. Didn't really change a lot of it. Didn't really change much of it. And it's yeah, basically the same geometry to this day. It's just the reach has got longer and 650B and 29er wheels in it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I got my first Ranger in 2013. And I, like I said before, I was just 
going through everything I could find on the internet being like, I want a hard, uh, hard tail that you can still pedal around on steep C tube, flathead tube and a low bottom bracket. And that was kind of the checklist. And Ranger was it. First one was a 26 inch one back before there was much happening for bigger wheels. It's great, but it, it clicked. It was what I was after for it. And, uh, I kind of was having some of the same ideas at the same time, I think. And just when I saw the geometry chart, I kind of thought, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. That's the bike I'm trying to buy. And uh worked out. I hadn't ridden anything that was even close to it at that point, but had an inkling that it was going to work. And lo and behold, it did. So I love the bit about kind of having this idea for doing some things different with geometry and just making bikes that were built really well and weren't kind of break stuff that was going to hold up because especially 10 years ago things just broke all the time bikes were so much less reliable than they are now and there's still certainly room for improvement on that still but it's come a long way to be sure yeah so that was another um another thing that tam and i were really focused on was making bikes that lasted um yeah like i said i was into downhill racing and all the nationals and yeah just the amount of broken bikes that you'd see at those races i was just like this takes the piss like you need to make a bike that could actually last a season of racing and yeah for us it's um you know function over form like 100 percent of the time like it's got a you know if it doesn't do what it's supposed to do but it looks good like what what is the point i mean you're not um you know, looking at your bike while you're riding it, and that's why we have bikes is to ride them. You know what I mean, it's like it's all well and good having it sitting in your in your garage looking at it, and you know we all love to do that and then just sit there looking at our bikes and thinking how good it looks. But it's not worth anything if it breaks while you're riding down the track. Yeah, certainly. So I would say that you've got the aesthetic part of things worked out pretty well too, even if it wasn't necessarily top priority. Got some sharp looking stuff, but. To sort of continue on that thought, then, how do you look at the BTR target customer? I mean, who are you really building bikes for and who is the, yeah, the target? If I'm honest, I've never really thought about that. And, um, yeah, you see all this sort of, like, business management advice and all that kind of stuff. And they're like, make sure you know who your target audience is. And, yeah, just the... Um, we just never really thought about that to be fair and no, i we just wanted to make these bikes that no one else was making we wanted to ride these bikes that no one else was making and we wanted to make bikes and so we made we made the made what, made what we made and um yeah i remember remember when there was the very first like uh, review that we had we took the bike to a dirt magazine and uh they did that just like a little one-page sort of interview with us. They didn't ride it or do a review on the bike. They just did like a little one-page interview. And one of the questions was like, Steve Jones says that you can get like a second-hand orange Patriot, you know, for less money than what you're selling the, the frame for. Now why would someone buy your hardtail and not get like a second-hand full suspension bike? And I was just like, well we wanted a bike like this so there must be other people that do like it was that was basically the extent of what we thought of the target um the target audience or the, the target market but yeah i guess like if you do think about it it's just you now people that want a 
a good bike that's that's going to last. You know, it's like um, that's yeah, that's that's who the target is, I guess. <laughs> um, with, with, with the handmade sort of side of things, you got to um, you know the prices are what they have to be. You know, but they're they're not mass produced. Um, and so they end up being quite expensive. So that's kind of, like you said, we've got the aesthetics things kind of nailed now. And that's because we kind of had to go down that route in order to justify the prices that we were charging. Um, they had to look good to attract the people that could afford to pay for them, if you know what I mean. Um, so yeah, kind of, yeah, we did have to start thinking about the kind of people that were buying them or you know, who we could get to buy them if we wanted to stay in business because, you know, we we wanted to make the bikes. It was never a, even to this day, I still don't want to get stuff made in Taiwan because I want to be the one that's making it. You know, that's why I started doing it is because I like making stuff and I like bikes and I want to make it. Yeah. And then, yeah, because we're making it and we live in the UK, it's just the way it is. You know, it has to cost that much money. There's a lot that I like about just the approach of going, well, we're going to make the bikes that we want. And if we want them, there's probably someone else who does too. And not being too worried about trying to design the thing that you think is going to sell the best or anything like that, just making the best thing. But I am curious what it was like in the early days, especially trying to kind of get people on board with some of what you were doing with geometry, because it was so out there compared to what was being done elsewhere. And I mean, I think, frankly, the market's kind of proven you right in a lot of ways, because there are a lot more things out there now that are a whole lot more similar to what you were doing ages ago. But what was it like kind of getting people on board before those ideas were a little more mainstream? Um, yeah, I guess it was pretty tricky. Yeah, we had to, you know, we made some pretty big sacrifices in order to be able to keep doing it as well. Um for the first like five or six years we were both working part-time well like for the first couple of years i was working full-time and then just making stuff in evenings and weekends um, and yeah that was full on you know just working seven days a week till 11 o'clock at night every day um tam like he was working in a bike shop sort of part-time and living on a shelf in the shed uh, there was snow and snow coming into the shed onto his pillow in winter. You know, it's like, um, and yeah, that was just, you know, because we weren't sort of hitting the ground running, selling loads of bikes, trying to convince people that what we were doing was right. You know, we just had to kind of make those sacrifices in order to, to make it work. Um, and there was... Yeah, there's a guy in Malaysia who's sort of he says those who ride know, and it was that was the case. You, you could t tell people till you were blue in the face that this is you know this is a good bike. You're gonna love riding it, but until you until you rode it, it just looked so different to everything else that people thought we were crazy. Um, and yeah, it's like coming out with the downhill hardtail was just completely. You know, you still get it today where people you'll be on a downhill track on a hardtail and people are like, oh, fair play, mate, like coming down here on that, like a bit of shaking you to bits. And you're just like, well, no, it's, it's fine. It's totally fine. Um, 
yeah, it was just completely different to what everyone else was doing. And there was still like there was still the hardcore hardtail scene, but it's way way bigger now than it was then. Um, and I like to think we have we had a lot to do with kind of growing that scene, with coming out with a bike that could actually be ridden on that kind of terrain really hard and fast. Yeah, I think you deserve a fair bit of credit for it. I mean, like I've been saying through here, I I was looking for that bike and found BTR because it was the option for it. So you guys were pretty clearly pioneering it. Yeah, there's a few people that tried to make the claim that they were the first, but yeah, I think we were. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it depends how you want to count it, I suppose, but lots of, yeah. you know, little steps along the way. But when I was looking, you guys were farther ahead of the curve than anybody. So we've been talking about the hardtails a lot, but you have made some full suspension bikes over the years too. I guess most notably, or in most volume, the Pinner. So tell us about that bike a little bit and kind of how its development came about and what the idea was behind that one. We always wanted to make a full sus as well. Because like I say, we're into into downhill racing and you know, look, as a, as a kid, I wanted to race the world champs and race that myself but then as a as a manufacturer i want to make a, a bike that could win the world champs as well so the idea was to you know start making sort of a downhill a downhill full suspension frame but enduro was kind of taking off or it had taken off at that point and so more people were getting into the sort of enduro uh, full suspension bikes and you know it was gonna it was starting to look like making a, a downhill bike just wasn't really gonna be the best business sense and we were kind of learning at that point that we needed to start having a bit more of a business head. <laughs> we couldn't just do whatever the hell we wanted to do. We have to try and make some money. Um, but the, the pinner came about because um, one of my friends that I grew up riding bikes with and one of Tam's friends that he was working at K9 with kind of approached us at the same time wanting an enduro bike, running enduro full sus. Um, so yeah, we kind of built them what is essentially like pinner prototypes. Um, so yeah, got kind of paid to build prototypes, which is kind of handy. And yeah, so we built those for those guys, and then they were riding from riding them for a couple of years, or well, probably not even that long, maybe a couple of months, and. You know, we learned learned a bit about how to make a full suspension making those bikes, and then also learned quite a bit from their feedback. And you know, we got to ride their bikes a fair bit as well. And then we released a Penna that looks it's pretty much the same shape as what it is now, but it had sheet metal gussets on it, like the like the original hardtails did. Um, and yeah, sold a few of those, and then a mate, another friend of mine. That we was racing downhill with. So yeah, when we when we released the pinner, first of all, we got this friend of mine to ride the pinner for a video, just like a release video, and he absolutely loved it and was like, "Make me a downhill bike." So yeah, we built like a longer travel version of the pinner for him, and then yeah, he raced that for a couple of years, and yeah, learned quite a bit from the construction from that as well because he. You know, cracked it in a couple of places, which then, you know, helped us improve our FEA analysis, which we then applied to the pinner. 
which then changed the design of the pinner. Um, so you'll notice on some of the first, like on the first iteration of the pinner, there's just like a sheet metal gusset between the seat tube and the top tube. It doesn't extend between the top tube and the and the down tube. And then we updated the pinner, you know, for it, and then it's got like a tube, no sheet metal gussets. It's got a tube that runs from the seat tube all the way to the down tube. And that's just kind of stiffening up the suspension area a little bit, you know, and that was a direct result of building that downhill bike. So that was kind of also on the back of the hardtails. You know, we were riding, you know, like some of the most gnarly downhill tracks in the UK. Even Fort William, we raced on on the hardtail on the belter. Did a national, you know, on the belter up in Fort William. And so yeah, it was just like you don't need loads of travel. You know, you can ride these tracks with no travel. Um, so yeah, when we were designing the pinner, it was just like we just needed. So the the kind of thing that we said at the time is you need good suspension rather than lots of suspension. Um, so yeah, we just designed it to have like the the exact leverage curve that we wanted, rather than aiming for a travel number. Yeah, so I think the the actual amount of travel was like 129.6 millimeters of travel or something like that. Whereas you know you'll get a lot of bikes that are designed because they want 150 millimeters travel or they want 170 millimeters of travel, and then they you know design the suspension around that. Whereas yeah, we chose the leverage curve that we wanted, and then built the bike from that. And yeah, it's like steels are. A great material to make bikes out of you know because you get that you know that feedback everyone kind of talks about you know still being flexible and you get get like a nice feeling from it but it's also with a full suspension bike it's kind of difficult to build one that is actually stiff enough so yeah with the penna it was kind of trying to build a, a full suspension bike out of steel that would be stiff enough you know, you're kind of going the opposite way with the hardtail. You're trying to trying to build one that's got a bit of flex in it so that it doesn't beat you up so much. But with a with a full suspension bike, you want a bit of stiffness. Yeah, there's a lot of talk from other brands about having loads of flex, which you know, tracks the tracks the ground well. But then, you know, if your bike's too flexible, you can't pick your line. You know, the bike's kind of noodling all over the place, and it's it's kind of difficult, you know, in the middle of a rock garden and you're aiming for that gap between two rocks and your bike's kind of flexing all over the place. You know, you need a bit of sniffness. Also, um, with with the shock as well, you know, if your bike's flexing around too much, you can kind of damage the shock quite a lot. You know, it needs to be, um, you know, it needs to be stiff where the shock is so that it doesn't stress that out too much. So, yeah, the swing arm... On the penner, you know, it was kind of trying to figure out a way to build that really, really stiff. Um, and yeah, the main pivot on the penner is like, like it's really, really overbuilt, and the process to to get that main pivot welded in as well is like really laborious. And um, you know, we tack tack the gussets into the frame, and then drill the hole for the main pivot to go in, then take the gussets back out weld the main pivot into the seat tube, then put the gusset back in and weld the gusset in. Yeah, so there's, yeah, there's a hell of a lot of work that goes into it. 
just so that we could build it strong enough for what we wanted. And, it's different. and yeah, it was just kind of, it had to be strong and not break. And so yeah, kind of the process to build it is really hectic. <laughs> yeah, and the swing arm on those looked like a pretty complicated thing to be building as well. Just a lot of tubes, a lot of joints, kind of pretty pretty elaborate little bit of work there. Yeah, yeah. So I've got a YouTube video on building a swing arm if people want to go and check that out. Okay, yeah, we'll throw a note, link to that in the show notes. People can have a look. But uh, yeah, those were pretty complex frames, but really neat looking little things. And Yeah, there's, there's more work in the swing arm than there is in like a whole hardtail frame than just the swing arm of the pinner. I believe it. Yeah, those were those were pretty serious. So yeah, I mean we've kind of been talking about the pinner in the past tense a little bit, and you you have pulled those out of the lineup at least for the time being. Think we'll ever see another one or another iteration of it or something along those lines. Uh, so not before not long before Tam uh, departed BTR, he did actually build uh, design an updated version. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of been sitting sitting on the computer waiting for waiting for me to build one. Um. Yeah, yeah. So the um the biggest problem with the penner is getting hold of dampers. So it's um Cane Creek have stopped building like that size of damper that I need for the need for the pinner, and the only one I can get is from EXT, and that's only because they custom build them, and I don't actually like I'm not holding my breath on on them not turning around and being like we're not going to make that anymore. Um, and then I, I run out of like the linkage parts for it. So we had like a big old batch of them made a couple of years ago. He's been slowly working through them. And yeah, I've got none of those left now. So that's kind of, I don't want to have to kind of get another whole big batch of those made and then EXT turn around and be like, we're not going to make that shock anymore. So yeah, that's kind of why the, the pin has kind of come to an end. Um, it's just because trying to get hold of the, the damper, but then also uh, the leverage ratio is really, really progressive on it as well. We wanted it to be progressive, but it's kind of almost too progressive. Um, you know, so it's got a linear progressive leverage ratio on it, which means that it gets progressive in a linear fashion. You know, the, the leverage curve in inverted brackets is is straight. Um, so there's, I think there's quite a bit of confusion about what, what all of this suspension terminology means. And you've got like linear and progressive and regressive. Another thing I've been complaining about for ages is the use of linear to mean flat because, I mean, it's not technically wrong, but it... But it, it, it is, yeah. Linear just means that the line is straight. It doesn't mean that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It can be any slope you want. It could be linearly super regressive or progressive, but yeah, so... Anyway, yeah, with you on that one being some rather imperfect terminology that we as the bike world could stand to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, just get, it's really, really progressive. And so, like, EXT actually, you know, the, the first iteration of Shock, we were just like, this is amazing, we love this. And then they've got the, like, the Storia 2 now, and it's got, like, hydraulic bottom-out protection in it. You know, and that just, you know, it's not good for the pinner because of how progressive it is. It just doesn't need that extra help. Um, 
So yeah, when I get order a shot from them, I'm like specify that they like don't put that in. You've got to take it out from from from, from the pinner. So yeah, there's you know the next iteration is is a lot less progressive. It's still quite progressive, but less than the current one. But yeah, it's just uh, I do want to yeah I do want to bring another one out. But it's just been really tough since Tam left to just kind of stay on to keep on keep on top of stuff. Um, yeah, I thought I was going to be able to do it when he left. I was like, oh shit, like it's not going to be that hard. But yeah, it's just yeah, just the amount of admin that Tam used to do is just insane. Like I remember him. Yeah, he always used to moan. He'd say, oh, "I feel like I've got nothing done today," and I'm just like, "How? How have you got nothing done? You've been here all day. You've been working all day. Like, what do you mean you've got nothing done?" And it's just admin. It just yeah, it takes so long to sort stuff out. You know, just ordering stuff or sorting out postage and talking to customers, and then like a parcel gets lost. And you think, oh, it's just like that's not the end of the world. The parcels get got lost. Just email the people and get them to find it. It's just like you can lose like three or four hours just like trying to find a lost parcel, or you know, you try and get someone to make some dropouts for you, or you know, make some linkages for you, and then they make them wrong, and then you can lose like you could lose a whole week just trying to sort that out with them, like what they've got wrong, what they're going to do to fix it. And yeah, it's just been really, really difficult since time left to kind of keep on top of the orders that I've already got, let alone bring something new out. Um, and then I bought that CNC machine as well, which has been a pain in the house. <laughs> um, so yeah, maybe one day, but yeah, things are, things are pretty tough at the moment. And yeah, we've got two two young kids as well. So that's uh, takes up a lot of time as well. Yeah, fair enough. You've got a whole lot on your plate with this. And uh, I guess probably it may be worth touching though on the Gasser DH bike that you did a little while back because <laughs> speaking of big undertakings, that one looked like, I mean, whole new design and a lot going on there. So how did that come about and how did you get talked into making that one? Yeah, I kind of, I kind of did that to myself to be fair. So we had a, um, the guy who bought the frame is, um, Chris Mutlitz and he's like kind of one of our best customers. He's got a Ranger and a pinner and his van's got like a massive BTR sticker on it. And like, he's always raving about the bikes and, um, he got in touch with me and was like, uh, what do you think of the, like the Starling Stern or the or the Curtis downhill hill bike, and I was kind of like, why, why, why are you asking me this? And he's like, oh, because I'm kind of thinking of getting one. And I was like, I'll I'll make you a, a downhill bike. <laughs> I was just like, I can't have you, like you're my best customer. I can't have you riding one of those bikes. Um, so that was after Tam left as well. Um, but I got Tam to design that frame for us. You know, he kind of did it in his spare time. You know, he'd, he'd got a different job and he was, yeah, designed the frame in his spare time. And that was smack bang in the middle of lockdown as well, like the first, first lockdown. So, yeah, Chris got in touch and was like, can you make this bike? And I was like, yeah, we can do it. And then lockdown happened. Um, and then, so he wanted it for a road trip that he was going on with his friends. You know, and it was like, we're going in, I think it was like end of July, beginning of August. 
So we kind of got the ball rolling and then lockdown happened and I was like, well, we don't like, it doesn't look like you're going to be able to go on this road trip. So it kind of took the pressure off and I kind of, um, I kind of had it in my head that it, like the bike wasn't going to need to be made for that road trip. So I had a bit of extra spare time and then things started easing up, like lockdown started like loosening up and people could kind of go out and it was like, it looks like we're going to go be able to go on this road trip. Are you going to be able to do it? Um, and yeah, I think we had six weeks to like get the bike designed and built and ready for him to like go on this road trip. So yeah, Tam got his head head down, designed the bike, and we were going to go with like a um, one of these yoke um, suspension systems. So like single pivot with a yoke going to the to the shock. And I remember putting up a. Um, Putting up a, like a design picture of it on Instagram, and then the guys from TF Tuned um, sent us an email and were like, "Don't build it with that because they just keep snapping shocks." You know, those um, that yoke system just puts way too much stress on the shock, and you're just going to keep snapping shocks. So yeah, but then, like, and the idea with that was because you know um, building linkages, although they're way better, you get much better leverage curve. Um, it's just really expensive to make linkages. Um, in order for it to be worthwhile, you've got to get, get a big batch of them, and then that's like a massive outlay of cash to make one at a time. It's just like really uneconomical, and it's just like those that linkage for that bike cost me a grand. You know, just for that that one linkage and the two push rods was, was a thousand pounds. That cost me. Yeah, got that email from TF Tuned saying it's just going to snap shock. So we went, well, we're just going to have to make a linkage then. You know, it's not the BTR ethos to build bikes that are going to keep breaking. So um, went with the linkage. Um, and then, yeah, it was just kind of as lockdown was easing up, I managed to, you know, all the material stockists, like the week that they opened up, I managed to order material from them. Um, managed to find someone that could make the make the linkage for us, um, and then yeah, I had to build, had to like design and make uh, a swing arm jig because the the rear swing arm is completely different to the pinner one. So I had to make a jig, build the swing arm, and then start building the front end. And yeah, it was just yeah, it was such a like I did. Um, like documented the build on on the Instagram stories. That's kind of in the um, saved stories at the top of my profile now. You can kind of go through it all again if you want to watch that. There, yeah, it's just like anything that could have gone wrong did go wrong, and it was just so stressful. Like, yeah, just it must have taken years off my life building that building that frame, and then. Uh, yeah, to try and get it done in time for him to go on his on his road trip as well. I ended up, you know, for two or three two or three weeks, I was like in the workshop nine o'clock in the morning after dropping the kid off at nursery, and then was in the workshop until ten eleven o'clock at night. Um, you know, five six days a week, and then the last week, you know, was staying in the workshop till like one two o'clock in the morning and then the last day was like a 36 hour shift you know it's just like in order to get this finished i just stayed up all night into the next morning 
and dropped it off at paint. And yeah, managed to get it back the next day. Like they painted it for us like that day. And then yeah, like built it up, assembled it, got it in the box and sent it off. Yeah, it was nuts. It was just yeah, it was a nuts, nuts project that was. Hell of a lot of fun, but like looking back at it, it was a, a lot of fun. But at the time, it was just, it was mental, absolutely mental. We talk about type two fun as a, like an outdoor pursuit and, and whatnot, but type two fun for a, a bike build project oh, yeah. is kind of a different twist on <laughs> yeah. it that I haven't heard before. But uh, certainly the end result looks spectacular. So, yeah, I'm pretty psyched on that. I need to make one for myself. It, it's a sharp looking bike. We'll get some photos of that up with this episode too this has been cool been a just good to catch up and get a little retrospective on all things btr and kind of your overall ethos and all the rest but before we let you go we do like to wrap up by asking our guests if they've got a big idea to share anything random that's been rattling around in your head to put out into the world yeah i don't know really it was like as a kid i wanted a um like racing downhill as a kid i wanted to not have to change gear. So I wanted like a continually variable gearbox, you know, so it would, you know, the chain was constantly moving and it would kind of, you know, set itself into the right gear. I, I want to, I'd like to have something like that. That'd be pretty cool. Um, there's a company that's making a, um, like an uh, e-bike gearbox, Revante. They've got kind of something like that on the go. So they've got like an electric motor, to like power the bike and then there's they've got like a separate electric motor that um powers a cbt gearbox um yeah, i want to want to have a go on one of those see what it's like that's pretty interesting i haven't seen that one before been pretty keenly following along with the trinity mtb kind of their iteration on the like the honda yeah, yeah, rnl1 cool, sort of yeah. modernized version of that and we've had them on the podcast to chat about that a little while back we'll link to that in the notes too but yeah, he's doing some cool stuff, and that bike looks very, very interesting. So, be cool to see where that goes. Yeah, it's interesting you've you've added on your podcast. I don't want to listen to that. Yeah, I'll send you send it over to you. It, it's a good one, and they're doing some some neat stuff. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if some of those iterations on a gearbox can kind of get going anywhere. It sort of feels like we've been hearing that gearboxes are the future for ages now, and they keep not catching on for various reasons, but. Yeah, like it's um, Shimano have got a lot to answer for on that as well. They've got like they've got a bunch of patents on it, and they just sit on them. You know, they're just basically yeah, I fucking hate Shimano. They they basically patent stuff so that other people can't make it. You know, I kind of think they um, yeah, I don't know. They've kind of got the rear mech market sewn up, and they just kind of keep keep all this stuff under their hat so that they can keep selling us rear mechs that we catch on rocks and have to buy another rear mech. That's kind of my cynical view on it. But um, yeah, they've got a bunch of patents on gearboxes and things that would be really good. And if people could just kind of piss around with it, it would be, it would be great, but they kind of, they kind of keep it locked up. So yeah, I think, I think, yeah, they've got a lot to answer for with stifling the, the development on that, on that front. Uh, also efficiency is a big thing with bicycles as well. So you know the the current drive drivetrain system is something like ninety eight percent efficient, um, and if you you know you're putting your own sort of manpower into it, 
if it's not that efficient, you can really feel it kind of feels like you're pedaling through mud or you've got a flat tire or something like that. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's another thing as well. You need to come up with a gearbox that's going to be as efficient as the current system in order for it to, to be, for it to catch on and be any good. Um, and yeah, it's kind of like, um, you know, plus size tires when they came around and everyone was like, oh, this is the next, next best thing. And I was like, but none of the EWS riders are using it. Like it can't be the next best thing. If it was like they would be racing it. Um, and so yeah, you see like there's no, none of them have got pinion gearboxes on their bikes, you know, because it's, it's just, it's not, it's not as good or better than the current system. And so they're not going to race with it. Yeah. I'd like to see someone crack it, but I don't think we quite got there yet. The uh, the uh, Lau Bikes Super Drive also looks like an interesting way to kind of do an intermediate halfway gearbox yeah. kind of situation, but one that at least in theory takes out a lot of the disadvantages of a derailleur, particularly with having it hanging off the back of the bike and vulnerable to getting smashed on stuff. So, yeah, anyway, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. And, uh, Thanks for coming on. Been really fun to chat. It's a pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Been enjoying the bikes. Nice to didn't even really mention this, but uh, we're working on another iteration of a Ranger for me. So uh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I'll be building that in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Awesome. Well, really looking forward to that. I'll share some more about that on here at some point. Very excited to get on it. So thanks again. This has been a lot of fun. Right. Thanks a lot for supporting the brand for so long. All right. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas, and as always, we'd really appreciate you taking a minute to leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts to keep the show going and growing. I also want to say thanks to Burf for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll talk to you again next week.